And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, May 17th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, federal grant dollars are enough to fund a small nation. Plus, data breach at your agency? Better report it and get it over with. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, a longtime Pentagon acquisition professional says one easy way to improve contracting is better communications with contractors, early and often. At the recent Acquisition Research Symposium, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr spoke with the Defense Contract Management Agency's director, Army Lieutenant General Dave Bassett. It's about setting a culture that that encourages that open dialogue with industry at all levels. Um, There's only a few circumstances in which you really don't want to be talking when you have a competitive request for proposals out or uh, potentially when there's litigation. But I think outside of those circumstances, it is critically important to have that open, ongoing discussion with industry around the contract. There's a tendency sometimes to worry about constructive changes or other things being construed as as contract direction. But I think experienced acquisition professionals, uh, whether it's the contracting officer or others that are involved in the execution of that work, can have that open, honest dialogue without there being any confusion about what constitutes contract direction. I think you had mentioned having those conversations before, say, an RFP is out there. Tell me a little bit about how you encourage contracting officers to reach out and the kind of things they need to be asking and the kind of conversations they need to have. I think in a lot of ways it's about getting really good feedback on your request for proposals and your requirements before they go out formally and to provide the kind of open forums to get feedback from all participants, not just any individual contractor. And sometimes that can be challenging because once an RFP is on the street, a contractor wants to be able to say they can satisfy them in order to be eligible for that award. And so to solicit that kind of feedback, I think, requires some very deliberate open, honest communication. And and then the the contracting community, and I I think about sort of the program manager and the contracting officer working together at this stage, has to be careful that they're not tailoring the RFP to the needs of any particular vendor. And so soliciting that broad feedback, making sure that you clearly understand what you're asking for and industry's ability to satisfy it, uh, that you're not asking for the impossible, or that you're not asking for things that are going to drive cost or schedule in ways that you don't desire. As a program manager, I think is really important. So there's things that they will tell you they can do, but there might be an impact later on cost or schedule that you may not anticipate. And to the extent you can get that feedback early on and then incorporate into your overall program strategy uh, as well as your contract, I think is really important. So I know that sometimes industry feels like contracting officers aren't realistic in what they're asking for. Is this something that sort of lends itself to a more realistic expectation? Yeah, I I think it's definitely something that can help with that contractors behave as they're incentivized to behave. And once an RFP is out there, they have a strong incentive to say they can meet it. So to solicit that feedback, and a lot of time it has to do with how you ask that question, you've got to give them space to to say something's maybe too hard to do, too expensive to do, too timely to do. Uh, and if you don't ask the question in the right way, you're not going to get those answers. And then you got to—you can't just do it with one contractor either. You've got to do it in a way that opens it up to, to everybody. And so going out with broad industry announcements, 
issuing draft RFPs with the right kind of questions associated with them and allowing time for answers. All of those things make sure that when you do go out with a final RFP, you can be a lot more confident that, that the outcome will be what you wanted and that their incentives are aligned with your desired outcome. So after you start talking to, say, one person, how much do you have to reach out and make sure that anyone else might have that conversation? Well, if you know you have an RFP coming, you really have an obligation to, to do it in a, in a broad, open, and transparent way. And that's why you might see folks use uh, broad industry announcements or some vendor conferences is something that I've resorted to doing in the past. Because uh, once, once the actual RFP is on the street, you, you've got a legal requirement uh, to limit your communication to certain ways. And so it, that makes it that much more important that you get that feedback before you enter that phase of the contract. So is this a bigger challenge for smaller businesses? I mean, I think it can be. Uh, and with a, a lot of the small businesses are often going to just be a subcontractor to a, bar, a large prime. And so what you've got is you've got dialogue happening at multiple levels. So if you're not communicating with the large vendors that are probably likely to prime that contract, they're not then able to go have that similar conversation with their supply chain and their subcontractors in time to be able to inform their offer. So that's, you really got to start early if you can and, and plan that in. Talking about buying commercial products, this is something you brought up. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Uh, sure. I'll say we, as a department, we are all in favor of buying commercial items. And where something exists in the commercial marketplace that either can meet a military need or can be adapted to, to meet a military need, and we can streamline the contracting process using commerciality in the FAR, we want to be able to, to use those, that commercial contracting process to do so. Buying something commercial doesn't mean, though, that we don't have to get to a fair and reasonable price. So if there's commercial sales of an item and we can look to those commercial sales to establish that price, that makes our job really easy. Where it gets a lot more complicated is when something isn't sold widely commercially or where it's, it's something that's kind of like a commercial item but not exactly like a commercial item. And then the contracting officer has to determine what fair and reasonable looks like. And under some of the commercial contracting rules, we don't get to look at certified cost and pricing data to determine that price. And then we have to look to other means other than certified cost and pricing data to arrive at that fair and reasonable price. And so I think there is sometimes an expectation in industry that once they give us a commercial price, we have to accept it. I think that if it's established as a you know widely used commercial price, we'll do it. But if it's not, if it's not something that we can look to and establish that fair and reasonableness, then we have an obligation to make sure we're still getting good value for the government. We don't want to be in the business of buying the $500 hammers or the you know $1,200 toilet seats or whatever those stories are. Just because something's commercial doesn't mean we have to accept whatever price is offered. Going back again to communication, do you see any correlation between times when that was done well and there was good communication, good feedback, and the management of the contract after the fact? Certainly as a program manager, I was reviewing those RFPs before they went out. And if it's a big enough program, you're even having to go into the Pentagon to get approval to reach that RFP. So you got a lot, a lot of eyes on target. You may even have a, a peer review of really senior contracting professionals looking at that RFP before it goes out. I mean, I think it absolutely works when it's done right. It's the kind of thing that you may not notice until later. You may not, as the RFP goes out to industry, that would not be the time where they're going to necessarily push back on what's in it. Oftentimes, the first time that you realize that you asked for something is when you get into execution and you're struggling and you wish you'd gone back and done it. But I think there's absolutely a correlation between programs that have been informed by meaningful dialogue with industry and those that maybe didn't get that level of feedback. And they, they just know less when they're asking for things maybe that are not aligned with their cost or schedule. 
with all the, the changes and all the new technology, are the pathways that you have for acquisition sufficient? Are there enough different ways to do it to sort of custom model each program? Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the adaptive acquisition framework. It's given us some, some default tools for certain things where you essentially get a pre-tailored acquisition strategy, which tailors out some of the things that you don't need to do, for example, for software or for business systems. In any event, you still have the ability to tailor whatever pathway you're on to make sure that the actions that you're taking, the activities that you're asking that contractor to perform are really the things necessary to deliver that product. And I think where you see really successful programs, they look at that acquisition pathway as a guideline and something that they can tailor to the needs of their program rather than as, a say, a cookbook where they have to follow every single step in the process. So having that culture that says, we're going to tailor the program to the product I'm buying and we're going to get the approvals we need to do that. It's not always easy, but if you do it up front, you normally get a better outcome. Army Lieutenant General Dave Bassett, Director of the Defense Contract Management Agency, speaking with Federal News Network's Alex Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, data breach at your agency? Better report it and get it over with. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Agency tech staffs must, by law and regulation, report cybersecurity breaches. But some industry surveys show that organizations don't always report breaches. Who wants to roll their own head? For some insight on the whole notion of compliance, we turn to the Vice President for Compliance Strategy at Cumulus, Igor Volovich. Mr. Volovich, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. There have been surveys out by some of the uh, companies, uh, I think Bitdefender, that showed that a large portion of IT executives feel that they are urged by their organizations to not report security breaches and just kind of bury them. What's your sense of whether this even happens in the federal sector or not? Well, I think we've seen some of this recently. We saw the infamous case of Rocketdyne Aerojet that actually had a whistleblower come out and say, well, we were actually told to conceal the fact that we're not compliant. And for a number of years, when they were executing their federal contract, they were claiming to be compliant with cybersecurity regulations and standards, and they weren't, right? So the rockets flew, the, you know, the, the company got paid, and uh, yet they were basically non-performing on their federal contract, and the whistleblower exposed it. So there are a couple of ways that this comes to light typically. Yes, whistleblowers, and the other one, well, you get breached. So, yes, you can conceal one breach, but not all of them. And as environments get breached all the time, it's unlikely that you can keep that game up forever. Because in the great OPM breach of, what, probably 10 years ago, the director of the agency lost her job over that. And now you hear increasing calls just generally that whoever is responsible for letting a breach happen, then you know they should lose their job. So there's a lot of disincentive for people that may not have a profit motive and then for companies, contractors, they have the motivation to conceal that from the government because of the costs that it would entail. That's absolutely right. So the personal accountability, it's becoming more and more apparent and transparent. Uh, we've seen a lot of effort by federal agencies to um, enforce the rules a lot better. We've seen regulators come to understand cybersecurity a lot better. 
And today, we don't have a common model for enforcing things like privacy. We don't have a federal privacy regulation, for instance. So it's kind of a hodgepodge of patchwork of state-based uh, regulations. But again, we're starting to see a light on that. We're starting to see a lot more understanding of how things work. So concealing things in the complexity of cybersecurity is becoming less and less possible. So this idea of plausible deniability, well, oh, shucks, we just didn't know. It was too complex. We had no idea. That's going away day by day, right? We're seeing a lot of that going out the window and the agency is being asked and, and agency leadership being asked to answer these questions. We've seen that in Congress. We've seen that across the uh, boundary over to the private industry, right? Anybody who's doing federal contracts are under the obligation to report continuously and consistently and with integrity. So the ethics of, you know, being able to conceal, can you conceal? Yes, you, you still can, of course. You know, if anybody wants to do malfeasance, they, they certainly can, right? But uh, the kind of transparency that we're seeing being enforced and being asked for by the federal government and by the agencies themselves uh, within their own sphere of influence, uh, it's becoming more and more prevalent. Should an organization, though, fire the top person or the person responsible necessarily if all of the accepted and recommended controls were in place, all of the patching was up to date, they had a program for, you know, continuous diagnostics and mitigation, all of these things. CMMC is coming down the road, in theory anyway, starting soon. Is that perhaps the disincentive that the fact that there has to be a head on a pike uh, for something to happen rather than an honest, well, let's see how we can fix this. Well, I think that's a perfect question, Tom. And uh, we've had this historical model of accountability. And I'm putting accountability in big air quotes, right? You know, you get breached, the top person gets fired. And you pretty quickly run out of talented folks who want to take the job. And right now we actually have a shortage of willing CISOs who want to take the job, especially in the federal space, right? And it's a tough job to begin with, right? To attracting the right kind of talent. When you have the Damocles sword hanging over your head, you know, a lot of things you don't control. There's only so much you can influence within an environment. You have your governance, you have the risk governance, you have your models of exerting influence over the outcomes, but ultimately there's only so much you can do. And also let's understand, this. Most federal environments are very complex. They operate in a constant state of change like any IT environments, but also you have these mandates. You know, we have to go in the cloud. For what reason? Well, because we have to be in the cloud, right? Some of these things don't necessarily make sense from a quote-unquote business perspective. That's real heresy you're speaking now. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, look, we're seeing a lot of folks waking up to the fact that we've been pushing for the cloud over a decade now, and some folks are not getting the ROI that they were expecting, right? Some of them are kind of pulling back and saying, look, maybe the fact that we waited and we're kind of these Luddites of cloud adoption is actually a benefit to us now because we have less change, we have less shift, we have fewer things that we have to worry about. Now, everybody's got some cloud, everybody's got some hybrid, everybody's got some level of complexity. And so what I've come to call a persistent level of a fog of war, there's a level of unawareness that is always going to persist. Now, for some environments, they set that bar at maybe 10%. They say, okay, if we don't know 10% about our environment, that's okay. Some say, we just have to accept 30%. And that's our baseline. So there's always something you don't know. Now, the danger is that that is the place where the bad things are going to happen, right? That's where your major non-compliance is going to happen. That's where that field control is going to expose you and expose your entire environment. We are speaking with Igor Volovich, Vice President for Compliance Strategy at Cumulus, an agency's management and the IT staff and plus everybody else. If you add up all of the responsibilities, compliance is a really big word these days, not just in cyber, but cyber joined by so many other compliance requirements on contractors, on agencies, on companies. The companies now have compliance departments and vice presidents of compliance. It seems like there should be a way to automate all of this so that someone is not 
caught by even well-intentioned lack of disclosure. So the question of compliance, right? We use compliance as the lens to look through, to look and assess our environments and understand our risk posture and our security posture. That's been the historical model. Now, compliance, of course, is in itself complex. There are many regulations. There are many different frameworks. Tom, you mentioned CMMC coming down the pike. You know, we out there in the industry, we see a lot of heads nodding when we talk about CMMC and when I mention it from the stage when I speak at events. But we haven't seen a lot of movement. We don't see a lot of environments in the federal adjacent space moving towards actually adopting CMMC, at least not in a way that would be meaningful, right? And let's remember, CMMC is not a new framework. It's another way to assess under existing frameworks like this 800, 171, and 172, right? So there's nothing drastically new about CMMC except, well, transparency and accountability, right? So CMMC 2.0 is really meant to solve the problems that CMMC 1 had and really create more integrity in the reporting structure. But let's kind of take a step back and talk more at the macro level. Just compliance as a whole, using compliance as a means of assessing one's integrity, one's resilience, one's standing from a cybersecurity perspective. There's a challenge there, right? Because Compliance typically is used as a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. And we can dig into what that means. All right. Well, what is it a leading indicator of? So it should be a leading indicator of your existing, current, ongoing security posture, right? But that's not the function that compliance has been built up to be, right? We've always accepted this historical perspective of compliance. And we inherited that from our friends in the financial audit because that's where we got a lot of those ideas, right? We capture past state. You know, we look at controls, we look at their state, and then we record that. And then at some point, it winds up on some report. And that report gets filed, and then somebody signs off on it. And that's the model. That's the model it has been for decades. Of course, in cybersecurity, things move too fast. Right. And so you need to know where you are today, not where you were three months ago, or in some cases, three years ago, right? Triannual assessment cycles, that's the common model, especially in federal space. So it's not uncommon for us to speak to a federal client and ask them, what is the oldest piece of information that is on a report that you're holding up in front of us, or you will be holding up in Congress when you have to testify after a certain breach, right? And they go, well, some of this data is three years old. And that's normal. That's common. They will break up their environments in threes and actually do it in thirds because that's only the bandwidth that they've got. So we believe that that's not the way to work. That is not the way to get value out of your compliance program. It's certainly very much within the legal framework and within the acceptable norms of what compliance is today, but it could be better. All right. And so, therefore, it becomes a leading edge type of indicator or something that you are in front of before something happens. Correct. Right. So we accept the timeline of real time now in security operations. We wouldn't think of operating with data that's more than a couple of minutes old. We want to be in, I mean, two milliseconds, right? When you look at security operations, when you look at security event management, you're trying to pull these data points in as fast as you can, process them, analyze them, get insights out of them. And so when you look at fusing all that information from your threat intelligence operations, vulnerability management operations, all of that needs to come into that nerve center that we call the SOC, the Security Operations Center. That's where your smart analysts are sitting there and trying to understand what's happening in real time. But we take a full pause and we swivel our chair over to the compliance department and we say, well, what's happening there? And they go, well, this is what happened three months ago or three years ago. Well, what value is that to me as a security operator? There's been this divorce between compliance and security for that reason. We operate on different time scales. And if you are the one that is responsible for the disclosure, if you are up to the minute and you say, gosh, an hour ago we just had a breach, that's a lot more credibility and probably you look more like you're on the game than if you say, Gee whiz, this happened two months ago, and the dwell time of this particular software was one month, so we don't know what the heck happened. That's the difference Uh, between the backward look and the forward look. Correct. Right. Exactly. So 
with compliance, traditional level of compliance, we, we just capture that past state, right? Nobody's looking at compliance, although ostensibly, right? Let's remember compliance was designed to be a tool of risk management, right? We want to capture a state. We want to understand if control has failed and we want to mitigate it or remediate it, right? Fix that control, make sure it's not failed anymore. And we understand these controls are built on these frameworks that represent a posture that we're trying to achieve. That is our objective state of security for an organization. And it's built on the model of a threat profile, right? So, you know, for a federal environment, you know, NIST 853 represents that kind of threat profile and the controls that would protect you. And same thing across all different industries. CMMC, of course, obviously, that's another good example. But we said that, we said that's what compliance is for, but then we accepted this historical posture. And so when we identify a control failure, it takes months, if not years, to actually fix it. We take this different approach with compliance. We just accept the fact that we're going to be looking backwards. So I call it rear view of mirror security. We're doing things in the past. So there's no value to it, right? So when you talk to a security person, they look at compliance as this thing that we have to, it's a gauntlet, it's a nuisance. It's just this paper, this bureaucratic exercise that really doesn't deliver any value to the security operation or to the security posture of the organization, right? You're always capturing past state. To the question I asked a moment ago then, is there a way to automate compliance? Absolutely. We feel automation is not just something you do for automation's sake. It's not just another box you check, kind of like you check in the box in your compliance program today. Automation is really a way to converge the timelines between security operations and compliance operations. It's really doing for compliance what DevSecOps did for IT, right? It's automating, operationalizing, bringing a lot of these things together, leveraging the resources that you have, and actually creating additional ROI out of your existing security investments. ROI that's sitting there dormant today, capturing historical past state, bringing it into the real time now and giving you value for a security program out of your compliance program, bringing them together. And that's what we call convergence. Igor Volovich is Vice President for Compliance Strategy at Cumulus. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me on. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your secured device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how contractors can prepare for a very big year in contracting. But first, federal grant dollars are enough to fund a small nation. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Federal agencies spend more on grants than they do on procurements, way more. The Government Accountability Office finds that spending could be more transparent and could stand a lot more oversight than it gets now. For more, we turn to the GAO's Director of Strategic Issues, Jeff Arkin. Jeff, good to have you back. Thanks for having me again, Tom. And let's talk about first the scope of dollars that the government spends on grants. I have to admit, I had a number in my mind for several years about roughly where it was. But when I looked at this report, I was blown away. It is a big number. Uh, federal grants play a very important role in funding our national priorities, uh, such as responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. At the same time, federal grants represent a substantial financial commitment. For example, in fiscal year 2022, the federal government provided about $1.2 trillion in financial assistance to, to states, localities, tribal and territorial governments, and, and most of that's through grants. And to put that in perspective, that assistance accounted for about one out of every five federal dollars spent in 2022. And that money must have come partially from the bills other than normal appropriations because the entire normal appropriation is only $1.5 trillion. Yeah, that's right. There has been a fairly large increase since 2019 due to the response to the COVID pandemic. 
this is not really a report at any particular agency, but kind of an overview survey of where things stand in grant making. But it seems like it's getting more complex as a result of the growth in numbers and the multiplicity of programs. Does GAO expect that to kind of be the status now forever? There definitely has been a lot of growth in the number of programs, the diversity of grants available to recipients like state and local governments, and that does bring some complexity. Part of that is there's a lot of variation in the ways that different federal agencies administer these grant programs, and that can be challenging for potential recipients and ongoing recipients. And has grant making overtaken the agency's abilities to control it and have oversight over it? Do they have the controls in place they need? What have you found there? Uh, It's definitely a challenge. Uh, Controls are extremely important. There's always that balance between how to manage burden for recipients, but at the same time, ensure that there's adequate oversight on the part of federal governments, that the money's being distributed and spent according to the law and then the rules of all the various agencies. You know, we have found some areas where there have been challenges. One example of that is improper payments, which is payments that are made either that should never have been made or made in the incorrect amount. That's been a persistent problem for the federal government since 2003. Uh, Improper payments have totaled almost $2.4 trillion cumulatively. Uh, This most recent year, 2022, the estimate was $247 billion. So it's a significant amount of money. Yeah. And controls need to scale along with the spending, I guess, is my question. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's incredibly important for agencies to have uh, adequate internal controls in place to monitor these grant programs, because it is, again, it's a lot of money going out. It's being implemented not by the federal government, but by other recipients. Uh, but the federal government and these individual agencies do have responsibilities to make sure the funds are being spent appropriately. Yeah, and that transparency question then gets into being able to see into those entities. Well, it's really two questions. One is, can the public find out who's getting grants and by which agency and how much? But then there is the question of whether the government can see into the activities of the grant recipients and where the money goes from that initial stage. So let's talk about maybe transparency in terms of the public being able to track this. Sure. Uh, One important way that the public uh, can track money sent to grant recipients is through usaspending.gov, which is the federal government's public website that shows where money is being spent, which agency, which recipient. And there's been a lot of progress over the years in terms of having that information available. There's been some progress with agency timeliness and completeness, but we have found a number of, of challenges there. You know, some examples, it's not always clear where a grant award is actually going. There's different information that different recipients put in or even what the award is about. And so it does make it hard to track, at least in an aggregate level, where's all this money going? How much is going to who? And that's really the goal of some of the laws that created USA Spending. We're speaking with Jeff Arkin. He's Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And what about the government's own ability to see into the sub-grantees and so forth? Because especially at the state level, we've seen how the money can get fraudulently used. And that's definitely a challenge. When an agency provides a grant, that grantee is responsible for reporting on what they're doing. But sometimes grantees will provide additional funding to a subgrantee. We call that a subaward. Funds pass through to a different entity. 
And there are rules there that the uh, the main grantee has to report on generally most of the awards that go to subawards, but we have found some problems with that. There are some subgrants that don't meet the threshold of reporting. We found some other errors like duplicative awards or subawards that are larger than the amount of the actual grant, which can't happen mathematically. Uh, so we have been finding some problems with that. It's definitely an area that we are going to look into more uh, in the near future. Any other recommendations with respect to transparency and controls? I mean, you have recommendations agency by agency when you find something in their grant-making apparatus, but this is so widespread, almost every agency has at least some grant-making. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we do have some recommendations, in particular some to Congress in, in ways that they can change the law to help both with the monitoring and the improper payment side of things and also the reporting aspect of it. You know, one example is uh, requiring inspectors general to evaluate their own agencies and how are they complying with some of the rules about uh, reporting information like we were talking about so the public can be aware uh, and Congress and members of Congress can be aware of what's actually being spent, when it's being spent, and where is that money going, and, and again, where it may be going after it goes to the main grantee. And one of the issues you've also raised in this latest kind of look-see is the capacity on the part of potential grantees that is the capacity to know how to get a grant or to know how to account for a grant. What is that whole issue? Yeah, there can be a number of capacity challenges that grantees and or potential grantees can face. There are human capital capacity considerations. So smaller entities that don't often receive funding may not have the same institutional knowledge or awareness of grant processes. And they may not even know that grants are out there. Uh, you know, my name is on the GAO website as the person who does our grants work. And I get emails and calls from, you know, city managers of small towns who ask, where can I find out about grants that I can apply for, that my, my city can apply for, that we can take advantage of? The, the recently passed infrastructure law is an example of that. Well, I will get questions about where do I, you know, where do I go for this? And so that's just a knowledge issue that isn't necessarily a concern for, say, the state of California or the city of Philadelphia, where they have capacity to find those grants. They probably have 500 full-time people in a place like California that do nothing but grant proposal writing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they do have staff for that. And, and a smaller entity, a nonprofit, a smaller uh, county or town just doesn't have the same level of resources. Right. And I guess if you are looking at it from the grantee standpoint, almost any problem you can imagine probably has a federal grant program connected to it. So part of it's just knowing how to match what you need with what's out there. Because at $1.2 trillion, there's grant money for everything. Yeah, there are an incredibly large number of grants. And it's hard to pin down an actual number, but it's, you know, from what we can tell in the thousand to 2000 different type of grant programs, there's you know, anywhere from 500,000 plus grants out there uh, at any given time, at least recently, based on some of the data we've seen. So there is a lot out there and, and really just finding it can be a big part of the challenge for, for some of these smaller entities. Jeff Arkin is Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Thanks again, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how contractors can prepare for a very big year in contracting. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammond here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. (laughs) 
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Regardless of what deal Congress figures out, if it does figure out one, federal spending is going to rise sharply next year. That will mean more acquisition contracts than ever. Some federal contractors might have technical debt, though, in their ability to manage large volumes of contracts. For some free advice, we turn to Dell Tech's chief product officer, Warren Linscott. Mr. Linscott, good to have you on. Tom, it's great to be here. And you have written about this idea of, you know, we hear technical debt on the part of the federal government all the time, but contractors kind of mirror that in some way. What is their management challenge in the current age of acquisition we're in? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different challenges that government contractors are facing, both small and large, and I categorize them in a couple different areas. So there's the macroeconomic challenges I think we're all familiar with in terms of increased cost of labor, general inflation, supply chain challenges, material challenges. So all those things are impacting the federal contracting community. Then there's some specific challenges around ever-increasing cybersecurity challenges for these contractors. CMMC is due to come out later this year if the DOD can get it out. There's other challenges for regulatory environment like environmental sustainability and government's regulatory challenges. So all these things impact you know, the contractor's ability to think about improving their technology debt situation and improving their processes overall as a business so they can efficiently not only manage all the cost pressure from those challenges, but then compete in a marketplace that's getting even more competitive as there's less prime contract opportunities for folks. Because some of the pressures you mentioned, the environmental and this and that, have been laid on in recent years by the Biden administration, there's this huge compliance burden. It was always there, I mean, for federal contractors. Now it's even expanded, and that can get them into false claim situations or whatever. How do you then translate what you need to do on compliance with what you need to do to manage your company? Because compliance has always been kind of a siloed function in some ways. Yeah, I think it's less siloed now than it ever has been as it starts to permeate through every part of what we would call the project life cycle for a federal contractor. You know, there's compliancy that they have to think about for their personnel, for how they run their business, for their cybersecurity, which touches everything as they're handling sensitive data throughout the bid process all the way to project execution and close. And so they really have to have a comprehensive view of that. And this all starts with a view of people, process, and tools, you know, around that project lifecycle. And how do they build in compliancy with these new regulations or have systems that are flexible or agile that can address them as they come up? Because if there's one thing that's for certain is there'll be more regulations and more regimes that they have to comply with. Yes, because there's a couple of ways to look at how you manage from a contractor's standpoint. One is as a company, and there's ERP systems and management software that companies have to run themselves by. But in many ways, you really have to manage by project. If you're a federal contractor, costs go with a particular project when you bill the government, and they look carefully at that stuff sometimes. What's the best way to cut the way you look at your company as a whole with accounting, compliance, et cetera, all mixed in? Or is there some way to kind of project that over project by project, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. We look at the world through the lens of a project life cycle, right? And I think that each one of those areas from finding and winning new business to managing the contracts once they come in to developing the talent within your business, most of these businesses are people-based businesses, driving that financial performance both at the project level and the corporate level there are KPIs associated with each one of those. And there's kind of a best practice in terms of generating those KPIs. And there's a best practice in terms of where you should fall. So for example, if your day sales outstanding is greater than 45 days, 
right? You're above the mean for the industry at, at large, and you've got a problem with how you generate invoices that could come back to how you collect time. And so, you know, having a good way to look at these KPIs across the project lifecycle and to manage them effectively, have owners that are responsible for delivering them, and then to look at what they mean relative to your performance can give you insight into where you might be inefficient from a process perspective and help you drill in. So the first step really is understanding, you know, can we generate these KPIs? And from there, you can start to look at, you know, where am I inefficient as a business? And by doing this, right, you know, most of the reporting and regulatory requirements are based on the granularity at which you maintain data within these systems. So if you can generate these KPIs and you can understand how to get more efficient, that's one step in the direction of compliancy. We're speaking with Warren Linscott. He is the chief product officer at Deltec. And with these KPIs and all of these metrics, is it then easier for a contractor to know which projects are profitable and which are not? Because not everyone makes money on every federal contracting deal. Absolutely. Like if you look at just the managed section of the project lifecycle, which is all about, you know, managing your projects, you have to understand profitability, schedule risk, how you're delivering on time and on budget. You have to predict things like estimates at complete, estimates to complete, and your resource utilization. And so without a system that can track things at that project level in a more granular and fine way, you don't know, you know, where your profitability is, you know, which one of your project managers is the most profitable or which agency that you're working for is delivering the best projects for you to get that profitability. And so managing those KPIs and really driving that into the fabric of your business can help inform your go-to-market so that you're going after contracts that are best fit to get the best profit for your organization. And how do you tie in accounting to all of this? Because there are those types of contracts where you might be audited or you will be audited, even if it takes them 10 years to get around to the audit. But that doesn't absolve you from making sure that your cost accounting fits the standards that the government demands if it's a contract that is liable for cost accounting. And can you get the accounting metrics and KPIs into your system in such a way that you can later on have a better confidence in showing that you did what you're supposed to from an accounting standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. There are solutions, right? I happen to know one or two myself that are designed with project accounting in mind. Um, And that project accounting ledger really feeds into the general ledger and, and general corporate accounting. And so when we do it in that way, we're maintaining all the labor costs onto the project at the right level, all the materials cost, all the expenses. We're looking at both direct project costs, so someone's billing directly to the project, versus indirect costs that are allowable to go back on the bill to the federal government. And so by maintaining that granularity at the project accounting level and having trust in the systems and the process and the validations that would occur, then you can more easily comply with the regulatory regimes when they come around to audit those projects to ensure that all those direct and indirect costs are correct, that the rate structures are what were agreed to if it's a cost plus contract. So having that granularity at the project accounting level is absolutely critical to being able to more easily pass an audit. But I think the other more important thing maybe at times for government contractors is getting paid. So if you don't have accuracy in terms of your bills, if your customers don't trust what's coming out in your bills and you can't stand behind that in the audit, then that day sales outstanding can grow and you don't get paid. And cash flow is really critical for these businesses, especially the smaller ones that have to weather these other costs and challenges we talked about with really limited resources. And contractors have varying levels of maturity at all of this. I mean, if you're one of the large aerospace contractors, and even they run into trouble from time to time with cost accounting, and they even get False Claims Act winnings against them from time to time. But they have a great level of maturity going back decades. 
But the government is trying to get all of these new contractors having trouble getting small businesses. In fact, the small business roster is shrinking by most measures. And one of the reasons might be compliance and cost accounting you know, on the back end, let alone getting the contract on the front end in the first place. So what's your best advice for a so-called innovative contractor that would like to take their expertise to the federal government? And how do you forewarn them that the government talks a good game, but when you actually do business with it, you're kind of entangled? Uh, Absolutely. I think the first bit of advice I would give is never go it alone. I think that, you know, you need to be humble in what you don't know. And and there's a a large community of CPAs out there, of companies, you know, like Dell Tech and others that have a community of folks that have been through this transition. And we see this all the time with small businesses that are coming off generic, off-the-shelf accounting packages that were, you know, built for general accounting. And they have to make a transformation to federal contract accounting. And it is a big shift and they need help. And so what we find is that, you know, the ones that use either, you know, some or partial managed accounting services are the ones that really make that transition successful. Even if that's for uh, just a quarter, you know, and helping, you know, through a quarter close, they benefit from seeing how somebody that has the experience would do it. And so, yeah, definitely don't do it alone. You know, there's a lot of community support for getting new contractors in the door. There's a lot of folks of all kinds of different, you know, diversity in terms of ownership. So there's a group just about for everyone that's trying to start a new business or get into the federal contracting world. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, these projects never happen alone, right? As you mentioned, you have large prime contractors, they have vast subcontracting networks. They're always looking for new teaming partners. So they're, you know, willing, those networks are willing to help out new folks with new capabilities to learn the ropes and to make that transition. And once you figure it out, and having good government contracts is not a bad annuity, is it? Not at all, right? I mean, as we talked about, the this federal spending environment is, is quite positive, continues to grow, and so it's a great place to be. And when we have downturns in the economy, if you look back to 2008, 2009, and then you look at that compared to what happened in the pandemic, you know, the federal contracting community suffered maybe um, low single-digit declines versus double-digit declines in other industries in the commercial sector. So it is a great place to be because of the stability, but also because of the fairness in contracting. You know, you're not going to see the federal government award somebody a contract and then halfway through it, switch that award to another vendor because of a price difference or whatever. So come on in. The water is great. Warren Linscott is Chief Product Officer at Deltec. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The State Department has renewed its drive to hire data scientists. Its Center for Analytics is accepting applications to become GS-13 data scientists. But it's a department-wide hiring initiative. State will keep the positions open through May 25th or until it receives 400 applications. For details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Division Director of Communications, Culture and Training at the Analytics Center, Farah Khan. The objective of this initiative is the same as it was last year. We want to recruit talented data scientists who want to contribute to diplomacy. So in doing so, you know, we're aiming to promote a data culture and leverage data into department decision making. This year, we held a webinar that was very similar to the one that we had last year. It was a public information session. And we looked at the data. Of course, we're data people, right? We looked at the data for this year's webinar and compared the engagement that we had this year with last year's engagement. And we saw both registration and participation go up by about 36%. 
So we know from the webinar and from inquiries that we received that there's an increased interest in data scientists and interest in registrants wanting to join the State Department because it's an ideal place to work. And for data scientists who also want to play a role in shaping foreign policy, what better place to do that than the State Department? Okay, excellent. Well, I think if memory serves correct, last time this was a very quick turnaround from the job posting happening and the job announcement closing. So give me a sense of how many hires the State Department is looking to make. I believe that was around 50 last time. Just uh, a little bit of the basic facts of what's going on here. Well, the exact number of positions are sort of fluid. We don't have the exact number right now. Um, But what I can tell you is it is in the double digits. We've noticed, again, there's been growing interest in data positions across our bureaus and offices within the department. And so demand for applicants is strong. It will close, though, when we reach either 400 applicants or two weeks. So it's a very short window. We want to make sure people know about it. So we will be like pushing that out. And it could even be shorter than two weeks again, because once we reach our cap of 400 applicants, they will close down the application process. So for anyone interested in contributing to the State Department's mission in the most rewarding and impactful way, please pay attention to usajobs.gov because that is where we will have the announcement. Okay, well, if passes prologue here, we'll be measuring this in a matter of days, not weeks. But uh, yeah, we'll see more to come there. I'm really kind of curious about how the modernization of hiring has been happening with the data efforts at the State Department. You know, we've heard some new tools in the toolbox here. I think hiring certs have been among them. And I think that's a really useful way to ensure that there's a kind of constant pipeline of talent ready, even if during this initial hiring phase, there might not be a position for them. It seems like a good way to keep people on tap if you know positions open up. Can you explain a little bit more for my audience about these hiring certs and how they are a helpful way to uh, ensure that pipeline of in-demand talent? Let me explain a little bit about the hiring process, how it works for this initiative, and then uh, we can talk a little bit about the cert. So the MSS Center for Analytics is hosting a shared certificate, which means positions are available in bureaus and offices throughout the department. GTM, which is also our, what I like to say, big HR, right, will review the applicants followed by a subject matter experts review. The subject matter experts will review the resumes for specific data science competencies, and this helps the department to hire qualified candidates in a timely and effective manner. This process for hiring data scientists adds a layer of reviews by SMEs, the subject matter experts, and by having the SMEs review those resumes before the certificate is issued, we can ensure that hiring managers are receiving the most highly qualified candidates. Bureaus will then conduct their own interviewing and hiring of candidates. In a typical government hiring process, an applicant self-attests to their qualifications when they apply to the job postings on USA Jobs. Then Human Resources reviews whether they are qualified for the role and determine if they make the hiring certificate. And then they are referred to the hiring manager who may set up a round of interviews before making a selection. So that's sort of how the hiring process works for this initiative. Okay, got it. And you uh, you brought up the, another crucial component of this, which is the subject matter expert qualification assessments. That seems to be a really crucial way to make sure the applicants coming in the door are up to a certain standard, that you're getting those subject matter experts who already work for state to kind of vet the candidates, make sure they have the in-demand skills. Um, that seems to be another crucial part of it, as you just said. 
Yes, absolutely. And it's important because we want to make sure that we get the right talent in the department to do this amazing work that we're doing right across the globe. And so having those subject matter experts review, uh, we are able to sift through the applications and, and get the appropriate people to the right people for interviews or selections. And I just wanted to highlight one other key detail that I think is important for people to understand. It's how the certification helps the department to recruit talent, but also what happens when the application period closes. Well, depending on the needs of our offices and bureaus and hiring managers, the selections can be made from this certification for up to 240 days. Although we expect selections will be made sooner than that, it allows hiring managers the flexibility to hire anytime within that period. Okay, great. And to look at this a little bit broadly, what kind of data skills is the State Department looking for here that can really cover a wide scope of things? And what mission areas within the department are in need of those data skills? We're looking for data scientists with hard skills, such as programming, statistics, communicating both visually and through language, the results of an analysis, engineering skills, and more. You know, we work on real world issues that directly measurably impact the American people. So we want people who want to contribute to a mission that is bigger than themselves. And, you know, we're one of those places to work that does that, right? Like, I mean, you have other companies that have data science roles that focus on data science within the organization, whereas ours is more uh, broader and global. A relatively short period of time that the Center for Analytics has been a going concern, but it has really kind of helped drive a lot of modernization initiatives at the State Department. And so how ultimately does that work out? And how does CFA kind of make sure that this data expertise is at hand for a really wide range of missions here? CFA operates as a shared service provider in that we help solve data problems for other areas of the department domestic and abroad in our overseas missions. You know, we are the department's data management and analytics capability. We leverage a highly strategic intake process to determine what analytics projects to work on and where the projects will fit within our queue. And we also prioritize our projects whose value most closely aligns with the department's strategic priorities and furthers its mission. We also prioritize those that show tremendous potential to inform policy decision-making and or save department resources. So it's really all about having mission alignment and measuring return on investment and impact. That's really what it comes down to. Thinking back to the hires that the State Department has made recently, where have those hires gone off to do important work? Like what have their functions been since coming aboard? The Department of State is highly diverse. We work on projects that range from foreign policy to consular services and anything in between. And we have a lot of data professionals that support every aspect of the department's mission. You know, we have folks that work in the Center for Analytics that help us execute our enterprise data strategy, primarily working on data campaigns and developing and delivering analytics products. I mean, since the launch of the enterprise data strategy, we've surged resources toward mission-themed data campaigns in areas such as strategic competition, multilateralism, and climate. And then in the management themed campaigns, we focused on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, cybersecurity, and global operations. We've made significant progress in these areas, but our data scientists have also become a force multiplier during crisis in which the department leads. Farah Khan, Division Director for Communications, Culture, and Training at the State Department's Center for Analytics, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.